Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Kingdom Come, based out of our study on the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. For more information about this sermon and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. So as we finish up this series, um, Kingdom Come, my prayer is that you've been inspired to live again for the day in which Jesus will set all things right. My prayer is that you've thought, you've contemplated, you've meditated on the fact that Jesus has promised us in the scriptures say that all of his words will come to pass. He has promised us that there will be a day when the earth and, and the heavens will be renewed. There will be a day when his foot will touch the Mount of Olives and he will make all things right. He will wipe every tear, cancer, sickness, depression. It'll all be done away with when we experience ultimate and full deliverance at his coming. That's the promise. Then he released you in the earth to advance his kingdom. And so New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I was listening to him this week and he made this comment. He said that when in the New Testament, when the, the phrase kingdom of God is used, it's not always used with the intent of being expressed as a noun. And he said that oftentimes the phrase kingdom of God is used as a verb. And I struggle to understand what he means. And what he means is that the kingdom of God is not always something you say, I see or I touch, but the kingdom of God is something that happens to you. It's not something that you touch with your hands. It's something that comes upon you, something that changes everything within, something that renews you. The kingdom of God is a verb. It's an action. So as we're longing for the full coming of the kingdom of God that we can touch and see, we're waiting for the day that we can put our hands on that kingdom. We also understand that that when Jesus taught us to pray um, that 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 God's will would be established on earth as it is in heaven, that our our intention is to grab hold of these traits, these beatitudes, and to stuff them down inside of us, understanding that that when God says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit," "Blessed are the meek." Remember the commentator Herschel Hobbes says that this is the constitution of the kingdom. Understanding that when you live out these traits, you are stuffing in your gut the kingdom of heaven and allowing it to just leak out of you all day long as you walk about. It's our intention to grab hold of the culture of heaven, jam it down in me, and then express it in all of our relationships. So as we finish today, I pray you become enamored, absolutely enamored with these themes. Pray you grab the culture of heaven, shove it down, and allow it to leak day to day. And remember that Paul calls you the aroma of Christ. What does he mean by that? So here's our text for today. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One more time. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I want to read to you Galatians 6, 17. This is the conclusion of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. He says this. From now on, let no one calls me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. 
And here's a profound quote from Martin Luther. You know, in all of his persecution, Martin Luther said this, the truth will win out. The truth will win out. And so as we come to the conclusion of the Beatitudes, and you remember Charles Spurgeon, we talked about Spurgeon said that the Beatitudes built off of each other, like they're building a little mountain. And so the the pinnacle of embracing all of these character traits, the pinnacle of being poor in spirit, the pinnacle of really being meek and really being gracious, uh, the conclusion of that is that you will be persecuted, that you will experience rejection from the world. In the early chapters of Genesis, you know, we start in Genesis 1 and we get the fall in Genesis 3. Um, we get, we get Cain murdering his brother Abel because of his own unrighteousness. So 1 John 3.12 tells us because Cain's own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous, he murders his Brother, And so Cain takes his brother's life from envy, not because Abel dishonored him, not because Abel stole from him, not because Abel was sneaky or a liar in any way, but Cain takes Abel's life because Abel is righteous and he's not. We continue through the narrative and we find Joseph in prison after refusing to sleep with his master Potiphar's wife. Remember, despite him, she claims that he tried to rape her. And so his master's wife tries to come on to him. He runs. And then she has him put in prison for denying him. Why cry rape when the man ran? Why allow an innocent man to rot in prison? Then David spends years in the grip of, of Paul's persecution. I love Gene Edwards' Tale of Three Kings. Do you remember that old book? You ought to read it if you've never read it. Gene Edwards' Tale of Three Kings, he paints this picture of David sitting before Saul and Saul grabbing his spear and slinging it David's way and it missing and sticking in the wall. And then, then David not picking the thing back up. Like David's no chump, like we learned from scriptures. Saul, Saul slayed his thousands and David slays his tens of thousands. David's not weak. Man throw a, a spear at you and allow it to sick in the wall. What kind of honor David possesses? What kind of loyalty David possesses? What kind of character, integrity does David possess? And what he gets for having character, integrity, and loyalty is spears slung at his face. First Kings nineteen one through three says that uh, Elijah he rids the land of false prophets, and Jezebel says, "May the gods deal with me, be it so ever severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them." I love Jeremiah chapter twenty. I've been obsessed with it for years. Jeremiah's prophesying the fall of Jerusalem, and the text tells us that the priest had Jeremiah placed in stocks and beaten. We know that his words come to pass. Yet he's rejected, mocked, and we see him struggling emotionally. Do you remember in chapter 20 where he's struggling emotionally as to whether he will continue to prophesy, whether he will continue to fulfill his call? And he says, ultimately, he says, God, you have placed a fire within my bones and I cannot contain it. I've got to keep preaching. I've got to keep proclaiming, even though there's suffering coming my way. Second Chronicles 18, we're told of Micaiah. A prophet who speaks the truth. Here's the king of Israel's words. Uh, when a prophet, when they ask the king, is there another prophet we can inquire of? The king says this. There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. Maybe he prophesies evil towards you because God is frustrated with you. 
Maybe the man speaks the truth in 1 Kings 22, 24. We're told that as Micaiah prophesies, he's slapped in the face, struck backhanded across the face as he speaks the word given to him. We transition to the New Testament. And John the Baptist loses his head when he speaks out against Herod's affair. And Acts chapter 6 gives this absolutely marvelous description of Stephen. I've loved to preach this over the years, and maybe sometime soon we'll take the time to talk through it. But, but it paints Stephen, who history calls the proto-martyr. That just means he's the first martyr. And it paints Stephen as, you remember he's a deacon, so he's like the servant. The scripture says that he's brilliant. He's having discussions with people and they can't keep up with the man because he's absolutely brilliant. And then the scriptures say that he preaches the gospel with passion, man. He's bold, yet he's kind and gracious and he's serving people. He's everything that you hope your kids grow up to be. And yet they circle him with stones. They sling him his way and he says, I see, he looks up, I see the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Paul persecuted, beaten, imprisoned as he preached from place to place, finally killed in Rome. I read to you this morning the conclusion of Galatians chapter 6 in which Paul says essentially, leave me alone for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. To remind you, Galatians is entirely about this issue of circumcision. And so the debate is there are some which we call Judaizers, we term Judaizers, who came to the Galatian church and told Gentile believers that they could not be Christians because they had not been circumcised. And if they wanted to be real Christians, they'd have to be circumcised. And Paul continually beats at this idea. And then he closes his epistle with this. He says, leave me alone because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And what he's saying, and commentators largely agree on this, what he's saying is that you're making, he's saying to the Judaizers, you make the claim that you belong to God because of the scar of circumcision. I'm telling you I belong to God because Jesus' marks are beaten into my back. You think it's the cutting of your flesh that makes you a child of God. But I'm telling you to leave me alone. Literally his words, leave me alone. My body bears the marks of Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying in the same way that Jesus has been beaten down, the same way that Jesus' back has been torn up, remember by that cat of nine tails, has been torn to pieces. He says, when you see my back, you see those same marks. I've been stoned, beaten, shipwrecked hungry, leave me alone. It's not your circumcision marks that makes you a child of God. I possess the very marks of Jesus himself. Church history tells us that he's finally murdered in Rome. So we slip into church history. It tells us that all of the disciples are martyred. They're all killed outside of maybe John, who we know was persecuted, who was exiled on the island Patmos. I've read to you before the story of James, the brother of Jesus, who's brought to the pinnacle of the temple. And then they throw him down from the temple and he falls, hitting his head and he's not dead yet. And so he rolls over on his knees and prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Church father Polycarp of Smyrna, church history tells us he's burned at the stakes. Jerome in the fifth century tells us that the church father Ignatius was thrown to lions. John Huss in the Middle Ages is burned at the stakes. 1536, William Tyndale was strangled to death. And then his body was burned at the stake. They say with his dying breath, he prayed for the king of England's eyes to be opened. What is Tyndale murdered for? He's murdered for trying to get the scripture to everyday man, for translating the, the Bible into everyday language. And they say as he's strangling him, they're strangling him death to death. His last breath, he prays, God, I pray that the king of England's eyes would be opened. 
church well, history tells us that three years later, the king of England released the King James translation. And so, and they, they largely used Tyndale's translation to build the King James translation. So his prayer was certainly answered. Center of Study for Global Christianity. This is a quote from their research. They said, we've done extensive research on Christian martyrdom, both historical and contemporary. And we estimate that between 2005 and 2015, there were 900,000 Christians martyred worldwide, an average of 90,000 per year. So from Cain shedding the blood of Abel to Paul bearing on his back the very marks of Jesus to nearly 100,000 Christians martyred per year, we see a legacy of persecution We see Christians choosing heaven and being chewed up and spit out by the world. And these traits that we've studied for the last eight weeks seem to pinnacle here. That if you truly embody the kingdom, the culture of heaven, you will be rejected. You will be spit out. And John 3 verses 19 and 20 says this. This is Jesus' words. This is judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus says to you that those who suffer will partake of a lineage of persecution. Rejoice and be glad. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first thing is this. To truly embrace the kingdom of of heaven, you must truly deny the cultural world systems. To truly, and I've t- we've talked about this before, to really say yes to my wife is to say no to every other woman who makes a, a, a shot at me, and they do. I tell you that all the time. It's like every, like four or five times a week, they're like, can't me their phone number? It just gets crazy. It just gets real crazy. To say yes to my wife is to say no to every other woman and to say yes to Jesus, to really look the man in the eye, to catch a glimpse of his face and to say, yes, I will follow and I will serve you. And I've said this to you before, to say yes to Jesus is to say yes to his lordship. You don't pick and choose what part of Jesus you're going to serve. You serve all of him. He becomes a lord of all of your life. And to say yes to him is to say no to the world. And when you say no to the world, she typically responds with violence. So John 5, 25, 19, 25, 19 says, Jesus says to the disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you were of the world, she'd love you as your own. But because I chose you out of the world, therefore she hates you. So according to Jesus, there may be times where you're misunderstood. There may be times when you're slandered. There may be times when you're left out, when you're gossiped about. There may be times because of your relationship with Jesus when you will be rejected. You start advocating for a society of honor. and Watch how quickly you're labeled as one who views themselves superior simply because you won't engage in gossip. You walk out of a movie with explicit content because you want to be pure in heart and you don't want to watch any other woman take off her clothes. You get up and watch out and watch how quickly you're labeled religious. 
Start talking about sin, what sin is, that we're all sinners and that we need to grow in holiness. And watch how fast the world calls you judgmental. Love holiness and watch how quickly you become judgmental. And, and we've really found ourselves in a societal dilemma where to disagree with anyone about anything is considered hatred for the individual. I'm telling you, don't buy that, don't advocate that. This kind of suffering, Jesus says that you will suffer because of me. Because to choose me is to reject the world. And she will persecute. She will spit at you. She will. And imagine Jesus as he walks to Calvary being spit at, slapped, mocked. And Jesus says to choose me in some ways to choose this path. The world will spit at you. But this kind of suffering is not getting a speeding ticket because you were speeding. If people mock you because you said something stupid, that might just mean that you're You hear what I'm saying? Like it's it's not being treating everybody at garbage like garbage at work, and then saying nobody likes me because I'm a Christian. No, nobody likes you because you treat everybody like garbage. Um, it's it's not not the same thing. No, this suffering comes to those who embody the fullness of the character traits that Jesus has been admonishing us. And the Beatitudes, the poverty of spirit runs counter to the pride of men's heart. To walk in the true poverty of spirit and to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and that I have messed up, it's directly against pride. And and we talked about the fact that, that to be meek, to really honor and choose meekness, the world system hates that. We talked about the fact that Nietzsche was so frustrated with this idea of meekness. They suffer, those who embody these traits, they suffer because they're foreigners. They suffer because they're outsiders, threatening even. Because they expose darkness and raise the standard of holiness. Threatening is exactly what you become when you start choosing to live holy. If everyone in the room, if you go to work and everyone in the room is gossiping, everyone is slandering, and you just in a kind way try to change the conversation, you in some sense condemn the gossip. If everyone in your workplace flirts with people, right? Like they're, everyone's just flirty and it's just what we do. And you say, look, I'm not, that's not appropriate for me. Like I'm going to choose to really honor my spouse. In some way, you just condemn the flirting. If everyone steals from the employer, everyone just does it and you don't do it, you condemn the stealing. And so in a sense, you become walking conviction. You become a walking standard. You become light that exposes darkness. And this is a part of choosing holiness. I'm telling you that what Jesus is saying here is that you've got to just embrace that. That's just a part of choosing to live holy is that when I choose to really love and honor my little chatty wife here and I don't engage in flirting, I am condemning the fact that you are flirting. And that's just, that's not judgmental. I'm not judging anybody by choosing to love my wife. Maybe in a subtle way condemning your action, but that's between you and God. I've got to worry about me and who I am and how I'm going to live. And I understand that when I live this way, I am living as light. And your sin may be exposed because of my choices, but that's on you, not me. And don't let anyone tell you that that's judgmental. It's not judgmental. I didn't judge you. I didn't say anything about your actions. I don't know anything about your history or what you're going through. All I said is how I'm going to live and who I'm going to be. 
It's not judgmental to choose holiness in the face of sin. It's compromising and fake to go along with everyone else's sin and just pretend like you don't care. It's inconsistent with your values. We have a real problem in our culture with consistency, with with people actually believing something and living consistent according to those values. To live holy is to live consistent with the fact that Jesus, wonderful Jesus, has asked you to be. That's not judgmental. Part of you being the light of the world means that you illuminate all of its shadows. Don't become proud in that. Don't become arrogant in that. Don't, don't get up and walk out of a movie just because you want someone else to feel uncomfortable even though you don't care. You know what I'm saying? Like, like don't, don't use this as a, a way to fuel your little religious thing you got going. But understand it. Embrace it. Live true to your heart and your convictions in the scriptures. And, and understand that by doing that, you will expose darkness. Paul says in Galatians 6, I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Dead to her and she's dead to me. Chewed me up and spit me out. My back looks like the back of Jesus. And then Jesus tells us what you should do when you're persecuted, how you should respond. You shouldn't respond with fear. The Christian never like cowers in intimidation He said, you don't have to be crippled by anxiety. You don't have to be worried about what you're going to say. Do you remember Jesus saying this? Don't worry about what you're going to say when you're persecuted. I'll give you the words. I'll give you the strength. I'll give you the the boldness. My presence will be with you. I love, and we've, we've talked about this before. I love Stephen's martyrdom. And I love him saying, I see with my eyes Jesus standing at the right hand of God. As if Jesus is honoring the man. I see him. And in Stephen's moment of persecution, stones flying at his face. The presence of Jesus opens up the heavens and says, I stand with you in your persecution. He doesn't promise that you'll never have to walk through it. But he does promise to stand with you in it. He gives you the words to say. He'll give you the boldness, the strength to stand. And he'll give you the compassion to respond. And we never retaliate, right? Like retaliation is not the posture of the Christian. Think through the prophetic implication of men coming to take Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter cutting off that ear. And Jesus stopping and healing the man. Think through the prophetic implication of that. Jesus healing those who persecute him. In compassion stirring up a healing gift, causing that thing to be restored, even though he's being persecuted in the moment. Consider your king in moments of conflict. Jesus' prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them. Stephen's prayer, Father, forgive them. Tyndale's prayer, Lord, open the eyes of this king with compassion for those ensnared in the grips of the world. Jesus came to give us life, man, abundant life. And we understand that those who don't walk in life have blind eyes and veiled hearts. We don't live frustrated and bitter because people stab us in the back. We don't live frustrated and bitter because people gossip about us. We live full of joy and passion because Jesus set me free of all my darkness and shame. Jesus called me out of darkness and into marvelous light. My encounter with Jesus, that's what dictates how I'm going to live. Not my encounter with you. 
I'm not going to allow the fact that someone gossips about me to, to, to so encompass my thinking that I get wrapped up in this experience. And this experience begins to dictate who I am. No, my experience with Jesus dictates who I am. And I am absolutely, totally sinful. And I deserve punishment. And I deserve judgment. And I deserve death. But he gave me life and life abundantly. He washed me. And he called me son. And he blessed me. And he brought me into his kingdom. No, that encounter dictates all of who I am and how I live. Take your gossip somewhere else. That doesn't change who I am. Then he tells you how you should respond with joy. Acts 5.41 says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin, you know, after they're beaten and threatened. And it says that they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for what name? For Jesus' name. He says, you should have joy because the kingdom belongs to you. And there we've gone full circle. Do you remember? Because the first beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now it's, blessed are those who are persecuted, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have joy because the world that rejects you today is passing away. When you're disgraced, mocked, belittled, have joy because tomorrow he'll set all things right. Have joy because I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And in my father's house there are many rooms. Have joy because you've earned for yourself punishment, but I give you my perfect reward. Have joy because tomorrow you will not experience the shame of your mistakes. You'll experience the honor of my righteousness. Have joy, Jesus says, because all that is mine is yours. Have joy, he says, because when Gomer continued to live in the life of prostitution, I told Hosea that he had to continue to love her with faithfulness. And I call you my bride. And even when you're wayward, I remain faithful. You have joy in your persecution. Where you once experienced fear, you now boldly walk into the throne of grace. Have joy because the kingdom is your inheritance. And the king, your bridegroom, And the holy God of all creation calls you son. He calls you daughter. Have joy when the world rejects you. Remember that heaven awaits, celebrates you. Have joy because you've been grafted into a legacy of righteous believers before you who also suffered. Jesus is obviously the pinnacle of suffering, the ultimate sufferer. We call him the suffering servant from the Isaiah 50s. He is the ultimate persecuted one. He was mocked, flogged, spit on. When you suffer for righteousness sake, you look like him. You in some ways experience him in a way that you hadn't experienced him before. Then he says, because your reward in heaven is great. Have joy when you're persecuted because there is a reward in heaven that is great for you. Wow, every person, Spurgeon wrote about this, every person oh, maybe Jonathan Edwards, um, will be perfectly happy, perfectly free of shame, perfectly free of envy, perfectly in love with Jesus in heaven. Some will have greater rewards, greater levels of glory than others. That's a plain scriptural idea, that we will have rewards in heaven, and some will experience greater rewards than others. And so Jesus says here that when you suffer, rejoice, because every little smack to your face adds to your Square footage. 
Again, the disciples were ecstatic when they suffered because they understood these ideas. They understood that they were suffering because of heaven, because they were embracing heaven. And the last point that I want to just kind of tag really quickly here is this. In Ephesus, Paul is persecuted because Ephesus um, was a city with huge temples of pagan gods. And when Paul came to Ephesus to preach the gospel, people quit buying idols. Paul is persecuted because he impacted the city so much that the economy shifted. That people who once worked carving little idols and selling them couldn't do that anymore. Because the man stepped into the city and changed the culture. And, and Stephen is stoned because the religious people are so frustrated because they can't debate with him. They're stumbling over their words to try to deal with his arguments. Stephen is stoned because he's healing the sick. The scriptures say that he was a man of power who God used in power. Stephen is stoned because he shook up the city. And Tyndale was strangled to death. Not because he sat in a closet by himself all the time, but he's strangled to death because he's trying to translate the scriptures and get them out to people. What is my point here is that, 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 that those who hide from their calling are never persecuted. You're persecuted when you actually start impacting your city. You're persecuted when you start using your vocal cords to preach the gospel. When you walk in the grocery store and you buy your groceries and you walk out and smile, ain't nobody throwing stones at you. But you start trying to share your faith and then you've stepped into an opportunity for rejection. Those who are persecuted are those who are impactful, two in the same. It's the logical consequence of starting to use your vocal cords and starting to really love people and starting to really proclaim truth to be persecuted. And if we never experience persecution, we should ask ourselves, how vocal are we? How serious about the kingdom are we? How bought into this thing are we? Or are we half-hearted, stale believers? Those are questions we should pin against ourselves. common quality of all those who suffer for Christ's sake is that they actually engage their culture, tried to impact their society. They attempted to embody the culture of heaven and to release it. They, int- they attempted to actually change things. They attempted to pray, God, let, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but then to live that way, that God's will would actually be done on earth as it is in heaven. They didn't pray the prayer and then live like hell. They lived consistently. They prayed, heaven, come, and then they lived, heaven, come. And it's that living that caused persecution. So in conclusion... It's in our pursuit of really believing for a better tomorrow. The kingdom of God filling the earth. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the water covers the seas. The perfect knowledge of God. The the prophet said that you won't have to tell your neighbor of who the Lord is because everyone will know him intimately. It's in our pursuit of that kind of knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth as the water covers the seas. That means totally covering the earth that we experience friction. We experience pushback. The point is that the, that the enemy nor the world jump on board with the gospel and say, yes, this is a great idea. The enemy and the, the world scratches and calls, screams to silence us. The enemy has no intention of sitting on his hands and watching us succeed. 
And those who are bound by the enemy's ways will do all they can to participate in slowing our progress. But the scriptural promise is that we will progress. We will progress. The kingdom belongs to you. The kingdom is yours. Hear Jesus say, it's okay when you're persecuted. All the prophets were persecuted before you. Rejoice and be glad when people utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, man. With every lie they add to your treasure, every curse they add to your reward, every spit in the face, that square footage is moving up. Keep embracing the culture of heaven, living in the culture of heaven as if you are truly her citizen. Do you really believe that this morning, that you are a citizen of heaven? And do you live that way? Do you live as if Jesus' words are the constitution of our community and of our society and that this kingdom, this culture, this society is founded upon love, selfless love and graciousness and humility and to be poor in spirit and to embrace meekness? Do you really believe that that, that those who... Jesus says, if so, embrace rejection. Get used to the fact that not everybody's going to love you. It's okay. Hear Jesus saying, it's okay. People are going to throw stones. People are going to gossip. People are going to misunderstand you. It's okay. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.